Good evening and greetings in the precious name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. We're glad everyone's here this evening. Looking forward to listening to the voice of God and to worship Him collectively this evening. I was just thinking how the word of the Lord comes to us, how the voice of God speaks to us, and it's been very evident this week through this series of meetings that God is speaking to us precisely through his word, isn't he? The word has been presented to us, my opinion, very precisely and accurately and non-wavering. Sometimes our sermons, myself included, sometimes we apply a lot of experiences or we may tell some stories. Um, there's different ways that we present sermons. But Brother Rodney has been this week not venturing very far from the Word of God at all. He has stuck right, right to the Scriptures and I appreciate that. We have, um, by the way, it's perfectly fine that your baby's crying. I love those sounds in church, to be real honest about it. I've been in churches where there is no young ones. So I praise God for our babies crying. The scripture has been presented very precisely to us. There's not been, Rodney has shared a few experiences, that's great. But he's been very practical with the word of God. And we've dug into some psalms that... I don't recall hearing preached on before, and I'm just so thankful. I was reminded, Jeremiah 29, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and he told him to go down to the potter's house for a message. And if you read that, Jeremiah chapter 29, the potter didn't say anything. And the voice of the Lord didn't speak audible to Jeremiah. He instructed him to go down to the potter's house and there you'll have a message or there you'll hear a message. And Jeremiah sat and he watched the potter. And the Bible says that he, he molded and shaped that vessel and then he marred it in his hands and then he rebuilt another vessel of course, speaking of Israel. But my point tonight is, is the word of God came very precisely to Jeremiah without even anyone speaking. And so, as accurate as what Brother Rodney's been and as capable as what I feel like he has been, really, when we just read the scriptures like we've been doing, the voice of the Lord can speak to every one of us individually really without the speaker even saying anything. And I just find great power in the word of the Lord tonight as we meet. Open your Bibles to the 69th Psalm. Rodney has asked for the reading of the 69th chapter of Psalms. Psalm 69, save me, O God, 
for the waters are come into my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Let them not that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren, and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speaketh against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water, the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul, and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach. And my shame and my dishonor, my adversaries are all before me. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some that take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but there was none. They gave me also gall for, thy meat, for my meat, and in thy thirst, in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually shake. Pour out, pour out thine indignation upon them, and let the wrathful anger hold, take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents, for thy for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come unto thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, let me upon let me up on high. 
I will praise the name of God with a song and, with, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock and hath horn, that has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him and seize and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah and they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit and they that love his name shall dwell therein. Psalm chapter 69. Let's bow before him in prayer. I'm going to ask Brother Harlan, would you lead us in an opening prayer, please?
His word certainly is filled with beauty and with wonder. Continue to pray uh, through the service for Brother Rodney Kimmel from our Berean congregation in Indiana. We'll turn the service over to him. Good evening. It's a blessing to be here again. I'm going to try to connect um, and try to be able to present some slides this evening. I'll give it a couple minutes here and then we'll just get into the message. Thank you for your patience. I think you buy stuff that it should just work, but I'm finding that not to be the case. Appreciated the uh, thoughts of our brother. I do believe in the power of the Word of God tonight, and I think for me that that's that's one of the beauties of of allowing the text to speak. And I want to thank you again for your prayers, uh, for me to be articulate, for somebody to say that I'm clear. I'm fairly confident that's not of my own doing. Any of you that know me very well, that I pretty easily mix up my words and say things that I don't mean. I think one time I was here at Cornerstone and I had forgotten how many children that I had and Bev had to tell me and my wife was going to let me just fumble around and figure that out for myself. So Tonight we are in Psalm 130 and those of you that are new to our evenings here have you turn in Psalm 130 also and join us and the thought behind this psalm and, and the reason that I went here aside from uh, the verity that is found in this psalm is using this for kind of a concise outline to hold me and my thoughts somewhere and wait them this week. And I, and I also hope to build a love and appreciation for this psalm. And maybe at a time when um, you would need to be encouraged and, and need to be lifted out of the depths as this certainly speaks of that it can be a relatable psalm. And that's really what we do as ministers is we aim to equip and so I hope that that is, that is one of my many desires is coming here. And I know that this is called a revival service. This is called a revival week. And I, I appreciate that because there is a sense of reviving our own hearts, mine included, when we do open the word of God. But I don't do altar calls. That's not something that I, that I do or ever will do. Um, maybe I shouldn't so be so dogmatic. And I don't have a problem with it necessarily, but... Um, my thing is if the Spirit is moving you and drawing you to Him, you should understand where to go by the end of this week. It's to God Himself, and you have friends and family, I hope. But if there is someone here that, that, that doesn't have that, you know, there's brothers, myself included, and others, uh, David Rice and Bart and many others, and Brother Phil that you can go to and work through this uh, amazing time if there truly is the working of the Spirit drawing you to Him. I'm going to read this Psalm 130 in its entirety. You'll have a subheading, A Song of Degrees, um, and this certainly is uh, uh, a song that, that, that progressively moves out of the depths to the heights. <clears throat> out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice, and let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. 
If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, and my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning, I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Last evening we focused primarily on the third verse, and I had introduced you to this psalm. I said this was built on couplets. One and two, we're holding a a tight thought together. Three and four, five and six, seven and eight. And that's no different when we're dealing with four. We have to attach it back to three, even though that we used three as a way of exposition last evening. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And, and the, the question that is being asked here is, is showing that in, against God's word and against God's law, iniquitous men cannot stand on their own. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And this fourth verse is what I want to hold up to you. And, and I literally wanted to do that on the projector, but you're going to have to visualize it as as being lifted up and before us this evening but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared and as as you look at this in the text and and when i had first encountered this psalm personally this was one of the verses that stood out as the most prominent as i looked at this it almost seems like a paradox there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared and there is a hint of that and if time permit tonight, and you can pray that it, it coincides, I have some really key verses that I, and places from the scripture that I want to bring out to illustrate that. And I think to me, as I look in the scriptures and I aim to do uh, the nights prior and, and moving forward, is when we have illustrations that the Bible uses, that the Spirit uses, that God has used, either in his people Israel or, or whomever, even in his son, these need to remain in our mind, but I, I want to bring those in and, and, and weight them here in the scripture. And that's, that's what I am, am aiming to do tonight. But I want, to, I want to really draw from a couple different passages, and I want to see the culmination in the cross. And that's, that's, my, that's my goal tonight. So we have this seeming paradox. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And I understand that there's a great deal of... Of, of talk about what is fear here? What is here? Is this just to be honored, to revere? And what does it mean to fear God? You know, that is certainly a question that is on the table and one which I wasn't prepared to talk about necessarily. But I will say this, that when, when we experience a godly fear, there's certainly a reverential fear. But as we've seen last evening, when we revere and we honor God, we are honoring God for who he is. And who he is is a God that is capable of amazing and some scary things. As Jesus says, fear him that has the power to throw thee into hell. That's the God that we serve. But coupled with that, that God that has the power to throw a soul into hell is a God that is full of grace and mercy. And so this is the, the apparent paradox that even you see uh, God speaking to the children of Israel when he says that he, he struck them and they didn't return to him. And, you know, and you read that and you're like, well, you, you hit him. He was smiting them. He was choosing them out of the furnace of affliction, but that was meant to draw them back to him. So there is a paradox in this verse, certainly. 
But we want to look at this. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I want to go back to Psalm 69 just for a minute. And I want to touch on something. And I don't know that we're going to go there directly. This psalm is, is a nice, it pairs nicely. Um, I need to be careful of my verbiage, but that's something you would find at a, at a vineyard, maybe. When you pair wines with foods, or you pair certain collars together and collar palates. This Psalm 69 pairs very nicely with Psalm 130. I have above Psalm 69 in my Bible, I wrote this, I wrote salvation. Because preeminent above all of the context that's found in Psalm 69, it is a messianic psalm. I don't think that's hopefully not lost on anybody. And if you didn't get some of that common phraseology in Psalm 69, we're going to draw it out tonight. But very quickly, in fact, in the first stanza, the first verse, it says, Save me, O God. So right away, this psalm is about salvation crying out for saving, for the waters are come into my soul. And as I mentioned on Wednesday at the beginning of these services, that this is a very common phrase to, to as, the, as the psalmist would write, is to give this illustration of what is happening emotionally, how it feels. It says, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into the deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me are without cause are more than the hairs of mine head, and they that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. And then he says, then I restore that which I took not away. Now, I would say for the most part, this psalm, it is a, a psalm of David. And so you have the duality where this is a, both an instructional and a experiential psalm of David, something that was going on in his life that the Spirit worked in him to write this. But it was also a prophetic psalm of Christ, of our Messiah, that would come and be ridiculed and hated by all mankind, even those that claim to love him as very brothers, and then ultimately being lifted up on the cross and dying in our place. <clears throat> so as we look at this psalm, this psalm has its culmination in the cross, and, and we're going to get there. But that makes me think, you know, we were last evening um, in Malachi 3 about he that ascends, who is he that ascended, but he that descended. And I want to take us to John chapter 3 and turn in your, your Bibles to John chapter 3. And this is probably a little bit of a telling on myself, but I have only preached out of John chapter 3 directly, contextually once, and it was at a funeral. And... Probably part of that is a little bit of pride and a little bit of nuance, realizing that I'm just assuming that it's probably the most commonly preached out of Bible because, or portion of the New Testament because it's one of the most common Bible verses. And I, I think that I've kind of shed that idea because I don't think that's true. I actually haven't heard a lot of messages out of John 3, so apparently other ministers are thinking, well, maybe since we're so used to it that we don't need to preach out of it, kind of like... Romans 8, maybe. It's just a familiar passage. Everybody's in it. Everybody teaches it. It's just common to Christians. But the thing about John 3 and, and really why it stands out to among all Christian circles, whether you're a seasoned veteran minister or a new babe in Christ, is because there's both milk and there's meat in this lesson. 
And as you see in John 3, we have a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and the same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, that no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And then our Savior Jesus answers and said to him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And we recognize, and I'm, and I'm certain because I know Brother David <clears throat> Rice here, that you have heard preaching, if not publicly, at least privately, about Christ's ministry and speaking and preaching about the kingdom of God. Because it is probably one of the most paramount things that Jesus taught when he came upon this earth, that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's nigh, repent. And so that's really the context we see aside from obviously the new birth, but this is the entering into the kingdom of God. How do we get from here, our earthly bodies, into a kingdom that we cannot see that is being prepared by a king that we do not see yet reigning? So there's, there's some nuance to this. And we have a teacher of Israel that it's asking Jesus, this respected rabbi that ultimately is the Messiah, the son of God that would die, these questions. And he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he says, Marvel not that I said unto you, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, whether it goes. So of every one that is born of the spirit, Nicodemus answers, and I'm moving through this fast, but bear with me. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and we receive not our witness. And then he goes on to some very common verses here. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is heaven. This is a direct quotation from Malachi, it seems. And then he goes into, in these next two verses before John 3.16, that come directly from Numbers 21, where we're getting ready to go. So if you'd like to be ahead of the class, you can turn there. But Jesus takes a very obscure portion of the text. In fact, this is the only time that this passage is reiterated, and then it's reiterated by our Lord. So we have a very strange happening back in Numbers 21, and Jesus brings into the, to this rabbi this story, and he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then he goes on to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but he that the world, but that the world through him might be saved, that the that and he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than evil, because their deeds were evil. Love darkness rather than in light, because their deeds were evil. Because every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. 
So what we find here in dealing with there is forgiveness of thee that thou mayest be feared, we find Jesus telling this Pharisee, <clears throat> Nicodemus, this ruler of Israel, this is how the kingdom of God is entered. It comes by being born again of the Spirit, and then he, he gives this, this idea of how the, the Spirit of God would come into the Son of Man, Christ, and he would be lifted up. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And I want, I want to turn to Numbers 21 because I think what's fascinating to me is Numbers 21 in a very graphic illustration that we're going to carry on through Psalm 69 and then into Luke 23. It brings about something that I think that we struggle with. And I think men struggle with, and I think that contemporaries with Christ struggled with. And it's trying to make sense of how when Christ was lifted up, that men still rejected him. They ridiculed him there on the cross. And yet he drew many to him as well. I'm just going to read, starting at the beginning of the chapter, what I want out of this portion of text is only nine verses in. It says, And the king Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard, heard tell that Israel had came by the way of the spies and fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And this is in Numbers 21. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of that place Hormah. And then they journeyed by... And then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Just like we heard back in Psalm 78, they become discouraged and they speak against Moses and against God. And the fifth verse, And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore, have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So we have this startings of this sedition again. Remember, this is now post Number 16, where we were the other evening, where there's uh, 250 plus men and then 14,000 and some men and, and those and women probably that die in the sedition with uh, Dathan and Byram and the sons of Korah. The congregation of Israel that were smitten, this has already happened. This is in the past and yet we see them rising up again before God. And the people spake against God and Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Speaking of the manna. So now in the sixth verse to the ninth verse, we get the, the story that Jesus references in John 3 to Nicodemus. And it says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. So this judgment that's sent out by God is a direct judgment to those that had defied God, once again complaining about being let out of slavery, out of bondage. You know, we have to keep that in context because God had saved them out of the hand of the Egyptians, a mighty, mighty display of his power. You know, even if you forget the plagues, we have the parting of the Red Sea and, and drowning the Egyptians in their chariots and all of that, and then leading them through the wilderness with a, a pillar of fire by day and a cloud, or a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by, by day. This is not an, an average wilderness wandering. This is being one that's been directed by God, and yet these people are still murmuring, complaining against God. So this judgment that God sends out fiery serpents out into the camp. 
It's probably interpreted poisonous snakes, some sort of a, of a of serpent that is, that is coming around. It's biting these people, and they're dying. And so the people come to Moses in the seventh verse and says, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And it says Moses prayed for the people. And that seems like a logical prayer to pray, to be quite frank. The thing that's killing us, ask God to remove it. Take it away. Remove these serpents that come into our camp that are, that, are, that are taking our people, that are punishing us for our iniquity. Pray for us. And so Moses does this. He prays unto the Lord. In the eighth verse, the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it shall live. Now, if I think we're honest with ourselves as we read this, and if we didn't have the context in which Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about this incident, we would be like, this is incongruous with everything that we know about our God. At least that's how I feel. In a lot of ways. I mean, for one, he's asking them to cast a, a brass or a brazen serpent and lift it up. So right, right away, it seems like we're dealing with something that is akin to idolatry. You're creating, a, you're creating an image, Right? And then on top of that, this isn't a lion, and it's not a lamb. It's not even an oxen, things that, that are ascribed to God, right? This is a serpent. The, this is a very, very strange, strange story when you look at it on its face. It is very strange. But, G, but, but the Lord says, everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So I want you to just, for a few minutes, I want you to place yourself there, and we're going to have to move fast. I see that we're going to be here later than we ought to be, maybe. Maybe that's not true. But put yourself in this camp. You, your family, you're being bitten by snakes. The thing that you hate now... Your leader, Moses, who you've already murmured against, mind the context of this. You're already upset. That's why you're in this position in the first place. And now he says, I went to God and God has commanded that I lift up this serpent on a pole that you look at it, you shall live. What's the, what, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with some serious mental anguish. Honestly. So you, you want me, Moses, you want me to look at the... You've now cast and idolized a brazen... It, it's the, this is what's killing us. We ask you to take it away, not lift it up. Not show it before all the camp. And now you're saying, we have life if we look but to the serpent. All you've asked us to do is look. And that's what will save us? I guarantee there is skepticism. 100%. And there was. But there were some that weren't. There were some that lived. In fact... It says, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So how does that fit? How does that story fit what Jesus is telling Nicodemus? How does that fit in exactly? And that, that to me is a hard one. Because the means that God chooses, the means that God chooses is in a serpent to rescue the people from the curse that is upon them is a picture of the very curse itself. 
The snake is the thing that is cursing, that is sin, is being lifted up and elevated and shown to them. And brothers and sisters, that's what we find in Christ. He became a curse for us. Despicable, despised, and rejected of men. That's what Jesus meant. He was lifted up. And those of you that know your history, this was what saved a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. He walked into a, a, a uh, service, and a man, I will just spare the details, was preaching a message from this. And he just said, you just have to look. You just have to look. Just look to Jesus and you will be saved. That's what saved one of the most mighty evangelists in our, close to our contemporary. I want to take us back to Psalm 69 for just a minute. And I just want to deal with a few common phrases before we get into Luke. So really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to marry two messages together in a short time and be able to teach them in a way that will elevate our understanding of this verse of there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. That's still the trajectory. Psalm 69 is a peculiar one. Spare you all the details. But in general, the Psalms were used explicitly during the new church growth and the new under the new covenant after Christ the church acts you get the idea but it's certainly among Israel as we already know the song of ascents these were sung this was something that was part of daily meditation part of prayers part of the readings psalms were entrenched within the Jewish customs and the culture of that day we have in verse 9 I'm just bringing this out this phrase it says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now, if you go into John, I believe it is, you're going to find the disciples when Jesus came in and he threw those money changers out, they're like, That's that's that time. The zeal that and, and they made sense of this. And just like I said the other evening, it's those obscure passages like we were bringing out in Psalm 24 that seem to catch our, our, in our mind, we're like, how does that fit? How does that fit? And I think that the disciples were well-versed with this Psalm 69. It was, it, was a, it was attributed to Messianic Psalm prior to Christ. This was something that the children of Israel would have known. And so when they see Jesus accomplish this thing, they're saying, well, he's fulfilling portion of Psalm 69. They're directed to that in their minds. There are several other references in Scripture pulled from Psalm 69, Romans 11, 9 and 10. Uh, Paul uses in, in the 22nd, 23rd verses. Acts uses um, verse 25, I believe. So this is a portion of text that has been entrenched in, in Jewish and early Christian custom. So I'm not bringing anything before you that, that is unnecessarily new to you, I hope. So let's turn into, uh, to our Bibles to Luke 23. And, and what I want to build tonight, yet still, is um, an understanding of something that I think has been misrepresented. And I think in addition to taking what we found in, in Numbers 21, we're going to find in, in Luke 23 something that I think encapsulates this picture of there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. When I hear 
uh, speaking and I, I hear discussion on the thief on the cross, I, I hear a lot of, of what I say, miscommunication about what happened there on the cross with Jesus and this thief. And, and it seems to me that it is simply relegated to a deathbed confession. Somebody, I've even heard Philip Yancey, um, I think it's been mentioned that he says it was motivated out of pure fear. And I don't want to mi- misrepresent uh, Philip Yancey's view of this exactly, but I think that he's, I think he's wrong. I don't think his motivation was pure fear. I don't think that at all. In fact, I think that we will find that, in my, in my opinion, I, I believe that the thief that's portrayed here in Luke 23 was, was Jewish. I think that we, we recognize akin to um, what would have taken place at that time with cru- crucifixions that it was very typical that the Romans were not crucified. It would have been those such as the Jews and some of the many others in that area. It wouldn't, the Romans would not have typically done that. There's many reasons there. But I think that our Savior, as he was there on display, as we read through this account, I think had on one of his sides, he had a Jewish man. I think he had a man that had grown up knowing the scriptures, and I think Psalm 69 was no difference at all. So let's look at Luke 23 together. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him, Jesus, to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Notice this half-truth, these lies. I mean, I think we can, we can already see that this is starting off to be a false trial. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then Pilate to the chief priest and to the people, and I find no fault in this man. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of the Galilee, of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged into Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was at Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. And then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently, accused him, and Herod with this man, this men of war, set him at naught, and mocked him, and arrayed him in gorgeous robe, and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people, and behold, I have examined him before you, and have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one of them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder was cast into prison. 
Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried again, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, Why, what evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified, and the voices of them and the, of the chief priests prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them, unto them him for the sedition and murder that was cast into prison whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, and he might bear it after Jesus. I want to pause there just for a minute. And I, I want to bring us back into Psalm 69, if, if you can. And the thing that I find fascinating about this psalm is its way and its ability to really capture something that was going on in Christ's life that we can only infer if we didn't have Psalm 69. The 14th verse of Psalm 69, he says, Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink, let me, not, let me be delivered from them that hate me. And out of the deep waters, let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let them not let the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good, and turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And he says, And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul, and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before me. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, and I look for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters I found none. And I want you to hold on to this 21st verse. And they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And it said, And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. And they shall begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what should be done in the dry? And then we have this key verse in the 32nd verse that says, There were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And I think it's in Mark's gospel, maybe Matthew's, that we find that these two malefactors, it says, both railed upon Jesus. I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating because these men that were being led away to be crucified are, are condemning our Lord and mocking him. And that other gospel was accurate in the case that it says both. And I think to myself, what would have caused... As we know where Luke is headed here in his gospel narrative, what would have caused one of the thieves to change his mind about this Jesus? What would cause this man to change his view of once mocking him to saying, remember me? And there were two, also two other malefactors, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. 
And I want you to I want you to hold tight to some of these verses because Jesus doesn't speak a lot on the cross, at least it's what's recorded. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they parted his raiments and they cast lots. You know, it was no hidden secret to these men that were crucified with this man what his criminal activity was. In fact, he had a plaque above him that said that he saith. He's a, it says, actually, that's what they wanted. He saith, but it says, King of the Jews. This man had been in that region for three years, and Jesus was not a mystery man by this moment in time. And I find that in the 34th verse, as Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, in, in, in Psalm 69, we have this, and they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And I don't know how this all laid out, if it's exactly the order that, that uh, Luke brings it here, because it says, And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him vinegar to drink, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the superscription also was written over him, the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged, which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. In the 40th verse, note the change. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And I want to kind of just stretch this thought out here, because when you go back to Psalm 69, if this man were Jewish and he had Psalm 69 in his mind, if you go back to that psalm, you find that right after this phrase, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in the thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, the response that should have came after that, the response that should have been uttered if somebody is following the dialogue and knows what comes after this. And, and you know, one of the things that I think of is this psalm probably was being quoted by the very men that mocked him, or at least this man, knowing it. Knowing the water floods are come over me. Lord, save me. Lord, deliver me. I'm not talking about Christ now. I'm talking about the thief, possibly. As he, he might be in this in his mind, and he's seeing this now played out in front of him, mocking this, being ridiculed, this Savior. And he knows that ne next thing that should come in, in terms of chronology of Psalm 69, it says it's a curse. It's one of the most imprecatory of all psalms. It says, let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation become desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and be not written with the righteous. That, brothers and sisters, is a curse against sinful men that hated the Son of God. And instead of that being said, our Lord says, forgive them for they know not what they do. You think about the transition that even our the Messiah has power to forgive sins, I don't think was lost to this man. 
I don't think it was lost. Because he says and answers, and actually Luke uses some strong words saying he rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? I think this is probably where Philip Yancey gets off saying that this is what was the turning point. Brothers and sisters, I think the conversion point is he's recognizing his own sin. And I want you to understand that all of the fruits of repentance are here with this thief. He recognizes his sin justly. And in fact, he says, We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. The things that we know that the thief recognizes is he knew that Jesus Christ was an innocent man. He knew that he was free of any transgression. And he pronounces him so. And I have to wonder, when we look at the crucifixion, when we, when we think about what could have been said, and, and Peter writes this, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Actually, that's Psalm 103. But that thought, for this man to have paused and rebuked this other man that is, is railing on Jesus, and why do I say that Psalm 69 fits here? Does it just fit because of the gall and the vinegar and the, and the lack of rebuke? Well, I want, I want you to take into context this because he turns to Jesus and calls him Master. And you think about if, if you had no context of who Jesus was and you just knew that he was a rabbi or a teacher or even God and you didn't have Psalm 69 in mind, I don't think that this is how you would say, this is what you would say to Christ. But he says this to Jesus. He says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He knew about the kingdom of God. He knew the very thing that Jesus had preached to Nicodemus about this son of man might be lifted up. He that came from above that ascended, he must descend. He must be lifted up that he draw all men to him. And he says, and, and, and Jesus' response is same vein of the context. And he says, and to him, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Immediately. Our Lord takes pity on this man and says, you're forgiven. And he says, you can come with me into paradise. And if you go into to Psalm 69 and you pick up right after the imprecatory bit in, ending in the 28th verse, it ends, but I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns or hoofs, just exactly what this thief did. He was praising God, honoring him at his last. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despises not his prisoners. Let the heaven and the earth praise him and the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, and they, that they may dwell therein and have it in possession. See, this is about a dwelling place. This is about being, having a habitation and a place to be, a paradise. In the 36th verse, and it says, The seed also of his servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. You see, I don't think the response of the thief was just happenstance. I don't think that he just converted out of plain fear with no context of who Jesus was. I think he was a broken man and he knew the Savior at this moment. And Jesus says, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. 
Brothers and sisters, as we look at these texts and, and we, we, we wrestle with them and, and, and try to see the relatability, you know, the thing that we have to confront, the thing that we have to see, is we have to see that when Jesus was lifted up before the world, he exposed to all men the wickedness and the perverseness of, of iniquity and sin and hatred. The whipping, the blood, all of that was before Israel and the whole world, as it were, and our Savior, He endured it even to the cross. And I just say, what a blessing. What a blessing. Something so wretched that we can say that there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Fearing the very judgment of God and, and being able to come to that same God that is, has, is withholding the judgment because we revere His name, because we honored His name, because we're seeking to live after Him. We're seeking His righteousness, not our own. I want to close with, with Romans 3 before we go in prayer. There's lots of places where we can go for the gospel. But I think Romans 3.21 at least fits where we are tonight. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and of the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be the just and the justifier of him, which is us, which believeth in Jesus. The fearing, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared, is coming before a just God that is also a justifier. And brothers and sisters, that's terrifying. Just as the thief aptly put it, we are indeedly justly condemned. But this man has done nothing amiss. And I am so thankful that we can conclude that a man is justified apart from the deeds of the law. It's through the merits of our, our Savior, Jesus. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Brother David, would you lead us in prayer?